Hello and welcome to The Games Press, a monthly podcast series in which I interview interesting people from across the games media about their work. Today, I'm talking to Tina Ramini, the editor-in-chief of IGN, one of the largest video game publications there is, both in terms of audience size, but also, I don't know, everything else. Now, regular listeners might remember that we spoke to Patricia Hernandez, the brand new editor-in-chief over at Kotaku a few months ago, and they might be thinking, okay, so this is a similar kind of job, I suppose. You lead an editorial team, there's a vision, you have to deal with upper management and think about hiring and all the rest. And yes, those similarities certainly exist here, but also, and this is a large part of what today's interview ends up being about... IGN is just a whole different kind of company. The scale is basically incomparable. Just before we get to the episode itself, however, I'd like to thank Loading for continuing to support this podcast. They're just about to open their third gaming bar in the UK, this time in Peckham, which officially opens its doors, I believe, to the public as of this Friday. So depending on when you're listening to this, um, it might already be open. Go to Peckham! They also run a couple of other ones, uh, one in Hackney and the other in the idyllic hometown of People Make Games, Brighton. So if you're in any of those areas, why not check them out? Have a beer, play a board game, enjoy yourself, you're worth it. And now it's Tino Amini. Hello, Tina. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you, it turns out, are not the first editor-in-chief we've had on, on the show so far however i don't think we've had anyone on the show who's responsible for anything like the size of a team that you are at ign so that'd be a great place to start the interview how many people work for ign at the moment like how do you fit into all of that or what's it like for sure. So we're, we are a big team. The overall company size is about 238 people, wow. uh, depending on what our current numbers are. But that's, you know, across the globe. And that includes our sales team, our engineers, um, across all of the different departments. The content teams across our content departments, because we've got three different ones, um, total about 109 people. Um, so that's uh, including the production department, um, our operations department, which also includes our guides team as well. And everybody across these different kind of uh, platforms, they work on core content in one way or another, whether it's uh, directly contributing to articles or videos, um, videos that complement articles. It's, it's kind of all across the board. We're very collaborative um, between those content departments, uh, which really lets us be on the same page and, and work towards the same goals. Uh, for my part, I'm responsible for kind of the overall strategy, the overall voice, policies, uh, just content in generally speaking across all of our beats and our different platforms. Uh, and under me, I've got uh, my executive editors and directors, and they lead the different verticals. So, you know, news, reviews, features, previews, events, and social. Um, so everything kind of funnels through those various channels. Uh, and, you know, we make sure we're we're all operating towards the same things. How How difficult is it to keep track of everything that's going on like even on the site alone because oh yeah yeah I, I think I, I just checked out the homepage just before the interview started and you know there's been like four or five things that have gone up in the last hour yeah like how how do you as someone that needs to know what the site is doing and, and what its temperature is like how do you keep up with it all it's we do publish a lot it's a lot um and we cover a lot we have a big team covering a lot we cover a lot in a lot of different ways so yeah it's it's a lot is kind of the the overarching word there um but we you know we rely we rely on a lot of our organizational systems so we use trello we use slack we've used slack like our lifeblood especially in the last uh year and a half or so since the pandemic we used to be a very like in office kind of culture um, mm -hmm. We'd brainstorm in the office, uh, you know, you'd walk over to somebody's desk and be like, did you hear about so-and-so or people come in after, you know, the, the last night's episode of secession and, and we, uh, we're mm -hmm. all reacting. And then suddenly we realize, no, there's, there's, there's a headline in there. Like there's a story we should pursue in there. So we had to adapt because obviously we don't have the offices right now and we, we had to figure out a new system. So we have a lot of different channels that are very specific for different types of work. Uh, and then, of course, the leads are in there and they're direct reports. But you have anybody who's interested who feels like they might contribute to that particular 
uh, type of work uh, has access to it too. And they can jump in, brainstorm, take assigned work, that sort of thing. Um, but outside of that, I also just really, really rely on my leads and the system that I have under me uh, to make sure to flag things uh, since it's very difficult to stay on top of all of that, uh, especially with my day-to-day and how often I'm in meetings in the middle of the day too. So I know, I know you're in Austin at the moment. Is is the What is the current state of like the, the main office? I have been to it once mm. at, during a GDC and it's a terrible memory for me because oh, no. there was a party there and oh, yeah. I was queued up to go inside uh with my editor at the time Mm -hmm. and someone had to come up to me and let me know that my flies on my trousers were were down oh no just yeah (laughs) i think so the best of us it's okay it's honestly nice that someone told you that you know instead of letting you walk around that way (laughs) you know what if that had been the way around if that had been someone queuing up for the eurogamer office they wouldn't have said that's the difference yeah yeah okay is that office like up and running at all at the moment? Where, where, where are you at with it? No, we, so that office in particular that you're talking about, we actually are done with our lease there and we mm-hmm. transferred to a different office. It's actually just a couple blocks away. Um, and we're completely gutting it and renovating it, uh, ripping up carpets and opting for hardwood floors, like really redesigning. So it's a bit well-timed to be moving offices since there's nobody in there right now. Um, you know, right now we've got some pre-approved people uh, under the, you know, local guidance for, COVID protocols in California, but also just kind of our own personal comfort levels too. So it's very mm-hmm. minimal amount of people just going in and making sure to keep our boxes organized while construction's going on and make sure we don't lose our stuff and whatnot. But otherwise we're not using them. Uh, and then in LA, we moved our LA office as well to uh, a much bigger location. So I'll eventually be moving to LA too is, is my plan Right. Uh, to when, when things go back to normal, if things go back to normal, hopefully. Um, so we've got really big offices there and we're still, uh, also a little bit mid construction, a little bit further along, um, in LA right now. Uh, so I've actually managed to visit the office. Uh, we did a small shoot out of there for Gamescom. So we had, uh, you know, one of those rare exceptions where we'll actually gather in the office with a small amount of people to, to produce something for special occasions under all the safety protocols, of course. In terms of like, uh, like renovating and redesigning, office space like what what do you need those kind of offices to be at the moment because again mm. going thinking back to that that time I visited past the trauma mm-hmm. um <laughs> like it's it was it struck me that like it was not like any games media mm. office space in the UK um that I'd been to before because it was it was almost like a destination to go to in, mm. in, in itself like there's a lot of like big branding there and yeah. And like lots of statues, um, lots, we've got of, our, lots of statues. Yeah, yeah, we've got our signatures wall, which is really fun. We actually managed to maintain that from the old San Francisco office, so it'll be making an appearance in the new San Francisco office, which is nice. But it, it definitely felt like um, it felt like sort of what I expected, like a big mm-hmm. statement IGN office should look like. But is is that still the vision? Is that still what you what you want from those spaces? Like what what does like an IGN office actually need to be? Well, first and foremost, I mean, obviously the the flexibility of, um, you know, we like having that kind of pit where there's just a bunch of people around one another because we like that kind of open exposure. Um, but, you know, our, one of our other really big important needs out of an actual physical space is studios. That's, that's the biggest thing. Right. So we've got, I think it's three main studios in the new LA office. Um, and they've got, you know, their different sets uh, in different corners for different types of shooting, but they look amazing. Um, and we got a sneak peek of it when we were filming for uh, Gamescom. It was a bit different because we actually had the studio set just out where the content teams are going to be sitting, but it's going to eventually be moved over into the actual studio space. So it's a bit of a Tetris right now, like fitting things into places while there's still a ton of mess and boxes around and whatnot. Um, but that's huge for us. And I have always really enjoyed that because we've had a lot of, you know, celebrities come in for interviews and whatnot, and they get excited about coming to the offices and they like seeing, seeing like these relics of, of past uh, gaming eras. And, you know, the signature wall is always is a fun one and people like to sign it. So we like to maintain that spirit because a big part of our philosophy, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later too, but a big part of our philosophy is like, we're also fans and that kind of comes through both in our work, but also, you know, in how we are with one another, uh, you know, with, you know, my example of like, we, we'll talk about like, did everybody watch the session and, and share mm-hmm. and trade ideas there? Who's the most famous person that you've needed to invite to the IGN office for um, some kind of That's a thing? good question. Uh, I think like for my part, 
it would be a lot of um, on the like game director side of things. Yeah. So like Corey Barlog has come through, Todd Howard's come through. Um, we've we've had like people come through for our like LA uh, set when we're doing E3. That's obviously the yeah, biggest yeah, yeah. opportunity um, just because everyone's in town. So we've had a lot of different people come through uh, just to shoot with us in our temporary studios there. Uh, this was back before we had this new LA studio, which uh, who knows, maybe we'll use that for future E3s if it's not too far from downtown. I think that might be one of the uh, the big differences between like my experience having worked at Eurogamer and, and a, a smaller cycle video gamer before then and IGN is that with IGN, whether it's at E3 or within your office space, like people sometimes come to you <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. it being the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah got, absolutely. Yeah, didn't have <laughs> it so much in mind. <laughs> yeah, th- that was my experience too. Before I worked at IGN, I'd always see like, you know, de- depending on the year, because IGN's done things differently. Like um, in the, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, it's difficult to remember a time before the pandemic anymore. But um, back when we were able to do things in a physical space and, and E3 was a, was a physical space event. Um, and I, uh, we we've had our like off E3 campus, if you will, like out of the convention center studios. But we used to have we always have a booth on the show floor, too. So we yeah. used, we'll have like some version of our set there. It's basically a different uh, set for us. And so when I so I've experienced that with IGN, but also before IGN. And I always used to think like as I'm dashing back and forth between appointments, I always used to be pretty jealous that. You know, people would just come directly up to you. But yeah. turns out we still have to do both because <laughs> yeah. there's our there's our show on the one hand, and then there's like the preview coverage and mm-hmm. the other interviews we may take with other people. Cause you know, certainly uh different studios will send different people for on camera versus like if you're just doing an audio only or written only interview. It's it's different kind of different kind of games for each of those. So you've had management positions or editor roles before this one, whether mm-hmm. that was deputy editor at Kotaku, um, you mentioned Mashable before, yeah. games editor. How similar an experience even is it? Oh, it's very different. You know, there's definitely a lot more that you can do at this kind of scale, uh, just because we have far more resources for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about video didn't used to be um, a big part of my job, certainly at Mashable, much less so um, at Kotaku. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, Chris Person's Highlight Reel. So like, mm-hmm. you know, when Highlight Reel was, when he founded Highlight Reel at Kotaku, we were working together at the time. So I'd worked very closely with him, but that was like the one video product that we had. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now we have like at IGN, we have dozens. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I get an opportunity to help with the various pieces of content um, in specific videos, but also brainstorm entirely new formats. So like next gen console watch uh, that we created to a year ago. Yes. A year and a half ish ago. That's something that, you know, we came up together uh, as a group and, you know, we're able to kind of identify what is the, um, what is the identity of what this show is going to be? And then incrementally like episode by episode, what are each of the the basic, uh, the overall topics that we want to focus on each week? I, I don't know how good a comparison this this actually is, but it reminds me a little bit of when we cover game development. You know, you look at the difference between an indie studio of like a dozen people and a AAA team, and where the you know the budgets, the team size, the the capabilities are very different there. Mm-hmm. But there are pros and cons to both. Is that how it feels? Like is 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 like. Is that is IGN in like the AAA part of the games media world? In a sense, you know, I, I definitely think that um, we're, we produce more, we're expected to produce more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always used to think of um, IGN as like, inside, before I worked at IGN, I always viewed it as like, oh, that's the encyclopedic site. That's the mm-hmm. site that like you see everything about. If you want to know about, you know, this random game versus this random movie, it's going to be on IGN. There's going to be something there. Um, that that speaks to that. So you're definitely working with a lot more, but it does mean that the, the pace is a little bit different and your connection. Like I have to make a concerted effort to make sure that I check in with uh, the various people that report to me because directly under me, uh, about 45 people report to me in, in some version or another. So that's a lot of people versus like yeah. at Mashable, it was like, three and a half of us. And I say half (laughs) because one of our reporters was also working on entertainment content, which I wasn't working on at the time. So it's a huge difference, you know, three and three and a half people. So easy to maintain that kind of like day-to-day connection with, you know, Mm -hmm. exactly how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they're working on versus, you know, at IGN, I have to rely on that structure I was speaking to earlier with my 
vertical leads, um, department heads, and you know, making sure that we're connecting and they're connecting with the people under them and they're connecting with the people next to them and under them. And you know, that whole system, it, it really relies on that working well. But it, at the same time means that we get to extend into different um, territories, you know, cover things that we don't have to be as selective about. We can experiment a little bit more because we have the resources to to throw at those experiments. When someone asks you what, what it's like at IGN, I guess um, something that you, you mentioned earlier is that the the site of the publication covers so many different things, like mm-hmm. across, it covers so much of what games are about, but also outside of that, you know, movies, tech, mm-hmm. like I'm sure like there's I can find articles on IGM right now about last night's meta announcements. Like mm-hmm. there's all these different things. What makes, what ties all that together? Like what makes something IGN? For in sure. Your mind? Um, so it's a couple of things like, you know, right off the bat, probably not too unique from, from most other outlets, but we're, we're very focused on our audience um, as probably every media outlet should be. Uh, but, you know, we, we follow what they're most interested in. We try to expose them to things that we think they'll be interested in. Um, we work to answer their questions um, and their interests that we know that they'll have even like within the properties that we're covering or the stories that we're chasing. So it's, it's very like our focus and our philosophy is very much around like what we think um, they'll be interested in reading about, um, obviously, because that's that's driving like your audience is driving all of your mm-hmm. business and all of your traffic. You know, and then I mentioned like that uh, in, uh, IGN used to be, at least as far as I understood it, very encyclopedic. And it does speak to our very like wide and varied audience uh, and certainly all of the lots of uh, content that we publish covering that wide territory. But I think, you know, it's and it, we're still that we're still very encyclopedic in a lot of ways. But I think a lot of what we've been emphasizing over the last few years is being informative, like with a finger on the pulse. So um, following what the trends are, how and what people are consuming, and, you know, hopefully along the way, entertaining them and educating them uh, while being kind of topical uh, in that sense um, as a kind of like overarching view of, of, of how we we are. Um, and then I'll, I'll add another reference, which is our motto, our tagline used to be like your friend on the couch. Um, which I still think we are because it speaks to like us being fans and experts, which is a big part of our voice. Um, and versus like when I was working at Gawker uh, back in the day when Gawker existed uh, for Kotaku, ours was very much, um, you know, Nick Denton's philosophy was very much tell the stories that you, when you go to a bar for happy mm-hmm. hour uh, and you're talking to your coworkers or your colleagues, Tell those stories, the stories that you are talking about. And a lot of that has to do with gossip. So, you know, I, I like a lot of that philosophy because it's talk about the things. And I take that from uh, if one of my leads is, is you know, Twitter is bad because if one of my leads tweets something, I'm like, that's an interesting story idea. Why don't you write that <laughs> yep. for the site? Mm-hmm. So that's that. But that's where that philosophy comes from. It's like the things that interest you are also probably interesting to your audience. And some stuff might be too insider baseball amongst the things that we talk about as colleagues between each other. But more often than not, there is something that's interesting to consumer facing audience out of that conversation too. something that we can contextualize because we are closer um, in that sense, since we're reporting on the industry, we're, we're closer to it to have that those kinds of viewpoints. So I, I think we're still a bit of that, um, you know, friend on the couch uh, and a little bit of like the conversations you're having with your coworkers and thinking about that. Um, and then, you know, of course, that extends into to game help coverage and, and all the tools that we've built to make game help more accessible and more useful, because that's also incredibly audience facing. You know, we're really targeting all the things that people are struggling with um, or might want tips on. Uh, so it all, it all comes back around to the audience, which isn't the most unique, admittedly. <laughs> do, do you have a an idea of what that audience like typically looks like? Are you or are you, do you think of the IGN audience as one connected group, or like lots of different audiences that are using the the publication in different ways? Yeah, I, I mean it's very different. We have people who will refresh our homepage. You know, some of those loyal logged in users. We have people who might only you know view us through our Snapchat channel or our YouTube channel. So that's something for us to think about too on a strategy level. Is we know that those audiences are different because we're such a large brand, um, which is something I've always enjoyed about IGN. Like we we want to, and that's part of our identity as well. Outside of just content, it's also the brand existence. Um, we tend to be on the cutting edge of new platforms and experimenting with, you know, new concepts, new formats, and you find new audiences on those platforms. So for us, the the trick is 
bringing them um, back to like a lot of the core of our coverage, which comes to obviously, you know, our IGN.com site. But we, tr- we try to replicate as much of that content as possible, as much of the spirit of that content as possible. Like if we're promoting something on the front page of IGN.com, we want to think about, okay, what about our YouTube audience? Like, is this appropriate for our Snapchat audience? How do we get like the day's what's most valuable out of that day's coverage, what's most important, how do we make sure to kind of convert that for our different audiences existing in in different platforms that might not be those like loyal, logged in, refreshing IGN.com every hour users. Another um, difference that strikes me there is that when when you're talking about IGN's like social media coverage um, for a lot of small publications that that might even be the journalists like logging onto those Mm -hmm. and, and like, trying to reshare their work yep. and get people back onto the site or maybe they have a like community manager mm-hmm. kind of role but IGN has entire teams dedicated to yeah. some of these platforms like you have a Snapchat team right yeah yeah I mean it's really we have a social team and then we social have team, leads right. um, within the social team that will mm-hmm. uh, be responsible for feeds versus uh, you know different um, they'll have different specializations essentially um, but they work as a as a group as a team and they brainstorm as a team as well and we have a community manager within our social team too right. um, she's just one person so wow. you know there's there's a lot uh, and you know it's a new role for us um, so there, there's a lot that obviously we can do from a community perspective so she mostly focuses on like lead zoning with our leads and making sure that, you know, she's able to be a resource for the community. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's really tough to, you know, you have to kind of define like, okay, what is your community lead going to be doing if you've got one person available mm-hmm. on this role? So um, for us, it's it's kind of like being that interfacing uh, person. So she's, she's even got like office hours um, and she targets our different platforms and she'll show up on, uh, and answer people's questions on those different platforms, create a connection with those specific audiences. Because again, like, you know, those those groups of people might be different across those different platforms. So she gives each of them a chance to kind of connect and ask questions and get to know her um, and through her get to know us a little bit more directly, too. And remind people that, you know, we're a team of human beings, not just like IGN, the brand, like when like IGN reviews is like, yeah, that's true. But it's also like, you know, the reviewer reviews something like those tend to be, um, those are, you know, tend to be those sorts of things that bring us, loop us all in as, as one entity rather than like individual humans. So that's part of the emphasis around that too. How does IGN decide when to go all in on a new platform? So like, I guess TikTok's maybe the most recent example of something yeah. truly breaking through and becoming like a major social platform. At, at what point do you, does IGN decide to, to dedicate real time to that? And also mm-hmm. like, what what are you actually trying to get out of it? What is the... Um, What's the successful kind of return on investment right. in that? So it's interesting because when it starts out, if there's a new platform, we're like, oh, sure. Like, let's let's see what this platform is about. Let's see what other people are doing, how people are engaging with it. And we'll start by looking at the content that we have that we feel like from an early impression of the platform that we feel like is translatable. And then how do we translate that in a you know tangible way? Like what kind mm-hmm. of cut um, is going to work for uh, you know, a platform that has limitations on, you know, what, what video you can actually put up on there. So we'll, we'll start out kind of brainstorming with that. Um, and it's as far as like gauging success, it's, you know, how rapidly is that channel growing? Um, does it seem like we're getting a lot of attention where we want to put more resources into it? Um, is there like that interest level essentially? And then how successful, are our formats on there? And do we, you know, are we noticing like new trends, especially with social media? Cause there's on every platform, there's going to be some version of a meme, um, some format of a meme. So it's kind of looking at like how that platform is establishing itself, how the community within that platform is defining that platform. Um, you know, Twitter's come a long way from what it once was. And I think uh, social media platforms themselves are a little bit at the behest of the community that is created within it, obviously with the tools that people use, that these companies use to kind of regulate those things, of course. Um, so it's just following that. And it comes back to like us following trends as well. So if if we notice that our audience just, you know, doesn't seem to be clicking with our content, we'll refocus the content. We'll, we'll re-strategize, re-brainstorm. Um, but if we're noticing like, you know, the, the trend of the, pla- like maybe the platform itself is just not succeeding, we'll follow that too. We'll kind of follow the winds of, of how those things go. Okay, so let's let's uh, return to the site ourselves, I suppose, mm-hmm. here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen you say before that that you feel that news is the backbone of, of a, a media outlet, um, having worked in and around news before early mm-hmm. in your career as well. Like, can you explain what that means in relation to IGN or just generally in your yeah. experience in the media? 
Um, it's a couple things. I mean, first and foremost, like people come for news, like some of the highest trafficking um, pieces of content anywhere I've worked has always been news because news is immediate. It's new. Um, and people, especially um, our audience and especially the gamer community in general, I think like likes to be on the cutting edge of news. Um, so news uh, and for for us at IGN, and this was the same at Kotaku, uh, it's, it's news and reviews. Those are the two big ones that would draw right. the most traffic. So that, you know, speaks to what your audience is interested in, what they're interested in out of you um, as, as you know, the media uh, outlet that they're that they're reading. But I also like the separate thing to it, too, is, is I just really believe in news values. And I think that news judgment should just be in everything that you do, like even day to day life. There's, there's a lot about the, the philosophies and the guidances that I think you can apply in a lot of different um, aspects of of what you're doing, particularly like in various different formats, like even in a review, especially in a feature, you know, there's those elements and those rules to abide by that just inherently makes your content stronger and more trustworthy. And it's a really important thing to get right. So I just really believe in fair and balanced reporting. Right. So you're talking about like the, the ethics of the ethics of the journalism itself can play into how other, how you're covering anything. Yeah. And it's, it, it gives you like, if you're, if you're abiding by those rules and and that fair and balanced reporting, you know, you're, you're asking the right questions, you're asking the right questions from different perspectives and you're looking to answer and provide context for things because you're, especially when you're working with a really big audience, you know, you're going to have people that might not be as informed about something that you need to give them the context for, or, you know, might be coming at it from a different point of view. And they're curious about like, okay, well, you know, how buttoned up, is this report, is this line of thinking, um, if you're asking the right questions on all sides of a story. So, you know, I, I really believe in that kind of like fair and balanced reporting, um, particularly because we just have this massive responsibility to all those different readers with their different tastes and perspectives. So what would an example of that be like in a review or a more general feature? Like how do you bring that stuff into that work as well? So, you know, often when you're, it depends on the feature, of course, um, like it might just be a lore explainer, which is pretty straightforward, but you know, a lot of features will take an opinion um, and take a stance. And so you have to make sure that uh, there are certain opinions that are like, I just didn't like how this character acted in this movie. You know, I didn't think Mm -hmm. it fit. Um, But even then you have to back up your opinion with, okay, but why, you know, are you comparing it to like, I'm playing Guardians of the Galaxy right now um, and kind of feeling out the the voice actors and occasionally being like, oh, that's jarring because I'm, I'm not used to that from the movies. And you know, like, is, is that where my opinion is coming from? And, you know, should I challenge that opinion? Have I, have I felt that way about other properties before? It's really drilling down to is what I'm saying valuable and supported and arguable to, to the point where I can share this with an audience and they can see my point of view. They can still disagree with it, but they can like see how I arrived at my point of view rather than just sort of arbitrarily like, you know, pumping out something. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot more to write an opinion piece on a, any.com than it is to like tweet something out arbitrarily. So it's, it's kind of that line of thinking that pushes you to really kind of substantiate and back up what you're saying. When you like personally have values like that, that you want to see represented in, in IGN's work, how, how difficult is it to kind of enact big changes on that publication? We talked earlier about, you know, this is comparing it to your, your previous mm-hmm. work, like the team size is massive. And like, I even remember at Eurogamer, it felt like a big deal at the time um, when we changed from review scores to mm-hmm. having badges. And I, like, oh my God, that, pro- that process took forever. Yeah. It took so long <laughs> just to get through that. And we are like, we're like a dozen people or something, mm. like a, such a, a small thing. What's it like at IGM trying to make big changes? Honestly, you know, it, it depends on what the change is. Um, often for us, like the more regular occurrence of changes is, is defined by like, adding more or different work, uh, mm-hmm. particularly if we're like experimenting, like, oh, if we cover this subject, is there going to be interest from our audience? Do we want to, how, how many experiments do we want to um, go with before we decide whether something's a success or a failure? Um, and we need to accommodate any of those changes or additions with a new workflow, um, you know, you, especially because you can't keep adding uh, to people's plates without adjusting for resources to make sure they're supported. Um, so inherently, that means you've got to set up for that change and you've got to communicate that change. Um, but it's, uh, you know, those those things are it really just comes down to 
making sure that um, the people who are connected to that change are aware of that change and, and why that change is mm-hmm. so that they can also make sure that they're in line with that philosophy and, and understand like if they're if we're doing a social post about something that's new, um, we know where that's coming from and how we want to promote it because of the emphasis behind like why we think that new whatever that new experimentation is why it would work. So mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the key thing to it. Um, but fortunately, you know, anything on the content side, I have a direct line to and my bosses have always been really supportive of any of the changes and experiments I've made. I, I think fortunately, because they've all mostly worked out so far. So I think they're, they're in line <laughs> with it. Um, but you bring up the, you know, Eurogamer's example of changing from scores to badges. And I think it was two years ago that Dan Stapleton and I um, made the decision to change from a 100 point scale to a 10 point scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was simply just, you know, he mentioned it to me um, and we talked through why it makes sense. Uh, and I was just like, yeah, this, this sounds good. I would like to, you know, simplify our scores to, to ensure that people aren't looking at our scores mathematically because man, a hundred point scale, you're, you're really saying each one of those a hundred points means something. Um, and we've seen our audience debate those points as well. So we, we want to move away. We wanted to at the time, like move away from those conversations and really drive at like, these are supposed to be stand-ins, um, like a shorthand stand-in for how we're describing the game. And, you know, it makes the, for the reviewers, I think as well, it makes it a little bit easier of a conversation like, oh God, is it an 8.9 or is it an 8.8? Like, you know, how specific <laughs> do we want to get here and like why yeah. and how do we substantiate that? So it's, it really simplifies things and makes it easier for us to communicate in that shorthand way, which is by its nature, you know, limited. That's why we have an entire review to read as well as a video review compliment um, for people who may not want to read, may want to watch. But that was, you know, me and Dan kind of coming up with that. And, you know, I ran it by pair and he was like, cool. And we just did it. (laughs) And we made sure everybody knew that we were doing it. So is that in terms of like stakeholders, like in terms of people that you need to like talk to when with, with a change like that um because to be honest that sounds more straightforward than what happened I know, at your yeah, game. <laughs> I know. and even then like you know pair always tells me like it, you, you can do what you want to do tina but I, I always like to you know run things um by him because obviously you know he's been with the site since forever literally uh since the existence of its time and has a lot of context you know he he has a lot of interesting stories for me to consider even if you know at the end we still decide like yeah the 10 point scale is the way to go i mean we had a pretty good reason for for switching to that it makes sense uh to everybody who you know we told um but he always has really good historic context too and he's like yeah you know one time we did you know we used to have this sort of scale and we changed it for this sort of reason and it's just interesting to get that kind of context as well so it's honestly it really comes down to just we're having the conversations um and you know my one of my philosophies is, is i'm always really open uh, i don't like to make decisions in a vacuum so i'm really open to taking people's uh you know their different perspectives into consideration and i think that makes your judgment that much stronger like i kind of consider my my vertical and, and and department leads is like my my uh, my my brain band. You know, they're they're, they're who I go to to kind of uh, um, reference things and and have uh, conversations with and uh, just kind of bounce ideas back off of each other. So that's kind of the environment that we've established. So to get things through on a technical basis is pretty simple. We just kind of do it. Um, and certainly, you know, in my position, I can make those decisions. But I like to kind of take a wider consideration before we go wide, especially because. You know, it's, it's crowdsourcing in a way, too. So we have a system where we will, um, if we want uh, one of our Slack channels, one of our many Slack channels is um, to brainstorm headlines uh, together. And that's your crowdsourcing what that headline is, because even just from our staff, which is a large group of people, somebody might be like, oh, I actually don't know what that term means. So maybe you want to, you know, take that out that that maybe is too much of a buzz or industry word and, and replace it with something that's a little bit more casual and understandable. Um, so, you know, you get like that crowdsource effect before you launch something, you get like judgment internally first and you can gauge what's the reaction going to be. Is there going to be confusion? Are people going to have specific questions that we should be ready to answer that sort of thing? So it's just overall like helpful to make sure that we don't have those kinds of conversations and decisions in a vacuum. When, when you joined in 2018, did you come to IGM with, with like any changes that you wanted to make to, to the site to put like your stamp on it in particular? And what were they? What, what was on the list? So first and foremost was news. Um, I completely revamped news. Um, and, you know, it makes sense because that's a lot of my background. That's a lot of my interests and my philosophy about it being really important and inherent um, to, to the content network. But, uh, you know, completely revamped it, expanded the team. Um, it's, it's basically unrecognizable now. 
Uh, we And we are, because I expanded the team, we're, we're much more flexible to be able to take on investigative and long-form reporting, which yeah, I think I've is also it. really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was huge. Um, and then I moved on to features. Um, you know, we, we were very reactive um, on features and did a lot of explainers, which is good. And we still do those things. But we're also very focused um, and more flexible now to, to focus on more prestige formats on top of that, like kind of reactionary and community focused uh, features and reporting. What's too. the prestige format? Uh, so like one of the ones I'm really proud of is it's called Inside Stories. So we've come up with these new brands. Um, we've got Inside Stories, Art of the Level, Art of the Scene, one for entertainment, one for games. Um, and they're like just deeper dives and it, it gives us an opportunity to like leverage the access that we get to do those sorts of deeper dives that are more interesting on that level. Um, and you know, the stories span so much of a different range. Um, so we get really like exciting, interesting, um, compelling work that even for our leads that are working on it, like it's fun for them because they're learning in the process as well. And they get this exposure to a lot of behind the scenes, even footage, um, but obviously, you know, stories that people tell them in the interview process. And it's just fascinating. And that comes back to like, we as fans, like we think that's interesting to us. We think it's compelling to us. And so we assume, and, and more often than not, it works out that our audience is also interested in that stuff. So news and features were, were definitely my two biggest um, initial focuses. Uh, and then I moved on, like once those kind of settled um, and it felt like the verticals were all uh, operating on, you know, really like as a well-oiled machine in, in their own respects. I moved on to like revamping our hiring practices. Um, so not just about the interview process, but also in being more proactive as hiring managers to, to focus on expanding our hiring pool and expose ourselves to, to the best talent out there, you know, whether or not they're looking and applying to us directly. It's, you know, good for us to make the effort as well. That it used to be more along the lines of a job post would go up and, you see who applies rather than yeah, we, getting out there. We've got, the um, I mean, it's, it's hard to say exactly before my time because it was before my time, but um, we do have, you know, we have a network of recruiters and we, ha- we do have um, uh, job board resources and, you know, we, ex- we uh, certainly promote and share uh, pretty widely. And then we'll go through the sometimes thousands of applications that we get for certain roles. And we have recruiters to help us go through that, but I'm very hands-on um, in my hiring process. And I, I'll do everything from like, I'll look through those thousands of applications myself, which takes a lot of time. Hiring is, is, is a big job. But also, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to my network, see who they think are interesting. I'll make sure that I'm constantly keeping up with bylines, like who's reporting on what, where, what work is being done where, and just making sure that you have a another finger on the pulse in terms of the network of, of talent that's out there, because there's, there's a really big network of talent out there. Okay, so uh, news, features, uh, hiring process. Is there anything else like that you, you still want to get to? Like, is there anything else that's like the next thing you want to change about IGN or or you happy where you're at at the moment? I mean, I'm pretty happy because I've been like nonstop, like, and now I want to target this. I feel like every year I worked on like one big, one or two big projects of like, let me revamp this thing. So it's, it's funny because, you know, I I always joke, um, especially when people uh, join on at IGN, I always joke like, you know, normal job, it takes about three months as a learning curve before you feel like you're really settled in at IGN. It's about six. And if you're in a leadership position, it's about a year before you're like truly (laughs) well and truly like settled in. And you feel like, okay, I can make an impact. I can start making changes because it, t- it takes a lot to come in, familiarize yourself, know everybody's names, how everybody works, what their struggles are. So like one of the first things I did when I joined, I set a meeting with all my leads and I told them like, what are you proud of? What do you struggle with? What do you want to do? What are your goals? What are your ideas? Um, and what's stopping you from doing all of those things? And then just incrementally working on that stuff. So I feel like we've made a lot of really positive changes. And the one thing missing Um, because, you know, change certainly takes time, but the thing that takes even more time is people recognizing that change. Um, (laughs) certainly if they're not like day in, day out reading the site and obsessing over it, like I do by, by nature of my job. Um, so a big thing is like, you know, I want to change people's awareness and sentiment of IGN. And I think some of that comes through Jadar community manager, because she's, you know, interfacing, um, with a lot of people. Some of it comes through like our promotions and strategies and making sure we're unifying, like I was speaking to earlier with the different audiences on our different platforms, making sure there, if there's a way for, for people to be more aware of like some of the long form content that we do. Um, if I have to read another comment about, you know, oh, wow, a piece of long form content from IGN, that's, <laughs> that's not a you know regular thing. I'm like, but it is a regular thing. Yeah. And so that, that comes down to just awareness. So that's something that's really top of mind for me um, to kind of like get those changes to be uh, recognized. I guess you've got 25 years worth of legacy to 
to sort of wade 100%. through percent. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we're an institution. And, you know, with that comes a lot of people's perceptions um, of what IGN is or isn't. And, you know, sometimes they're surprised when they, they click through and like, oh, wow, I didn't know IGN does long form reporting. And this is amazing. I'm like, yeah, we do. We do it on a regular basis. Please come <laughs> to the site and see that. Uh, so that's something to work on for sure. Um, and then I'd say, you know, to to what I was speaking to earlier about the, the reorg uh, that we went through, like, that's that's a big thing that we worked on recently, but I think is also a thing that is just constant that you have to constantly work on. You have new hires coming in um, and then, you know, you have new projects you're working on. So that's, that's a sort of project that's ongoing at all times to make sure, especially with the the size of our operation. Um, but part of that is really about making sure that people have that opportunity to kind of flex into like different vertical work or beats um, outside of what their own job roles are. Um, so, you know, making sure that they're they're happy and well supported and, and have an opportunity to like if you're a news reporter, you can still do a review because we've, you know, given you we've, we've worked on shifts and, and bringing, you know, support in to give you the time and, and the breathing room uh, to be able to work on some other stuff. I, I think people enjoy having the flexibility in their job roles and it keeps particularly when you're a writer, it keeps like creativity fresh. Uh, Cause it's easy to, if you're just churning out news story after news story and, and, you know, not able to flex other sides of, you know, your creative writing muscles um, it can, it can not be fun. So it's uh, nice to get that exposure to our other work too. Does that apply to you? Do you get to flex those creative muscles still? Um, sort of. I like, you know, by virtue of um, working with my leads, you know, whether it's there's a long form report that we're working on. Um, and because, you know, that's a really like important kind of piece. I'll be uh, roped into to those sorts of edits um, for, for an extra uh, pair of eyes, essentially. Um, so, you know, it'll be long form reports or there might be um, like recently we're going to, this is a bit of a teaser, but we're going to uh, publish um, uh, like the best contemporary horror games. We have many horror, uh, not horror games, sorry, horror movies. Um, we have many like different types of, of horror lists because we have a couple of horror nerds on the site, myself included. Um, so, you know, e- even then I got to actually like write some blurbs for about some movies. So that was, <laughs> that was a fun one, but it'll be moments like that where, you know, I get mm-hmm. to kind of connect and problem solve with people. So if there's, you know, an issue that we have with a review or a feature or a new story or something, you know, my leads will bring me in and we have that conversation. So I, I do get to work on those various things, but certainly not in a full-time capacity the way that my leads are. Is that a frustrating thing to give up at all? I, I, it seems to be, um, part of the curse of, um, becoming more senior in like traditional media spaces anyway, is that you end up going up the ladder and taking on more and more management and probably do less and less of either the writing or maybe the video work that you, or podcast work, or whatever it was that you started with. Is it frustrating to sacrifice that to in, in exchange to, to have a leadership position? I, you know, I definitely miss writing and editing more. Um, my, like I said, like my leads will still throw the hard stuff at me. So I still get to edit, which is nice. Edit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've always really loved editing too. Um, I love writing, but you know, when you're a creative writer, particularly if you're writing on a deadline, like it, it's not the same as like, you know, freehand writing. I, I definitely miss being a part of on a more regular basis, uh, being more of a regular part of that. But it still does feel like my my voice is represented, even if it's a little bit more um, sure. invisible. Um, certainly on like, you know, I, I actually am I'm part of a regular podcast, Game Scoop. So I'm, I'm weekly on the podcast. So in a way, like my voice is still there, but it's kind of just shifted essentially um, to a different platform. Um, and it's it's everywhere in like our philosophies or practices and how course, we might yeah, respond yeah. to things. So it's just it's just yeah, it's it's more it's less it less it's less visible in a sense than like a byline is. But I'll often like read things and feel like oh you know there there's a bit of me in there from when I worked with that writer and you know we we collaborated and solved this problem and kind of poked at an area to make it stronger. And that's one of the reasons why I've always really loved editing is like getting other people's to work shine like brings me a lot of fulfillment. And I think that's why. I so immediately jumped to like an editor track and really enjoyed that. So fortunately that's still a part of the job, but it's, uh, it, you know, you certainly get distracted from it when you've got other managerial <laughs> duties at play too. Do you ever think about what you would write about if you had more, more time to, 
do it. I, I'm going to hazard a guess and maybe it would be on the reporting side of things still. Yeah, I think it would, you know, I really, lo- really, really love interviews um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's an opportunity to learn uh, because, you know, when you're reporting, you're learning and then you're also sharing what you've learned with your audience. So that's kind of like a fundamental to reporting and a fundamental to interviewing too. And I love picking smart people's brains. It's one of the most fun things to do and just you know, getting an opportunity to ask the things that I'm particularly interested in, like, how did you guys do this one thing? And like, was this a struggle? And did you consider this initially? Because it felt like, you know, this feature was going down this route. Th- those sorts of questions is always really fun. So I think I miss interviewing um, quite a bit. But uh, so that would definitely be part of it. But fortunately, I do like we just t- talked about um, on the last episode of Game Scoop, which should be published as we're recording this. So it's not out yet. But we talked a lot about Guardians of the Galaxy. And I, I will say the one differentiation is I think I'm a stronger writer than I am speaker. So occasionally I'll like think back and be like, ah, oh, I meant to say this. And you get the opportunity to fill in for the meant fors um, when you're editing. Um, so, you know, that's the one thing that you you do miss when you're having those conversations, but out loud rather than like written down so that you can have an opportunity to be really thoughtful about it. So when I wrote like these horror blurbs recently, I wrote... Um, blurbs for, I'll tease this one too. I wrote blurbs for Let the Right One In and Malignant. Um, those were my two horror movies, completely different horror movies. So it was, it was kind of fun to like be in one mindset to write a paragraph about one of those movies and then be in a completely different mindset for a completely different movie um, and write about, you know, why I feel something is great. And I, I had to argue about Malignant to get it on the list. So it's also a fun experience using your words to like interpret your feelings about a thing to communicate and basically convince people of like why you think something is great. I think there's something really powerful about communication like that. So yeah, I had a lot of fun writing two paragraphs recently is, is the <laughs> consensus of that story. Do you not get to pull rank when, when, when there's a, when you have to convince people that, of which movie is going to end up on the list? I try not that. to pull rank <laughs> and like, honestly, I, I've rarely, rarely had to, cause I really believe like it's not a person that should make the decision. It's the answer that should make the, the right answer should be making the decision. So I like really don't have to. Um, it's I, I really prefer when people agree to, because I feel more confident putting something out. And I like when my leads challenge me because it challenges my perspective and makes me think through every single element that I may not have thought of. And I still might disagree at the end, but it's given me the opportunity to challenge certain of those perspectives and think to myself, no, I know for sure this is the right one. Like somebody asks you purple tire or, you know, red tie. And like in the back of your mind, you were thinking purple tie and someone says red tie. And you're like, absolutely not. Red is the worst color for this event. And that's kind of confirmed it for me then. So sometimes it's that. And sometimes somebody brings up a very valid point. You're like, oh, that's not what I intended when I was writing so-and-so. So let me think through how better to communicate that. Because that's ultimately, you know, what writing and communication is. It's you're trying to get your point across as effectively as possible. And we're all just a bunch of human beings. Sometimes you use the wrong word. You know, you you, you forget, you assume um, that somebody understands what you're saying, but you don't realize like, you know, part of your audience might not understand, like a lot of editors will tell you to explain like I'm five for everything uh, to make things more accessible. So there's a lot of different considerations. And the more people that you have ready to like bring you those considerations to review, the better your work is going to be ultimately. Which part of the job do you get the most joy out of these days? So I'm going to be real sappy and it's a good segue from what I was just talking about. But I think my favorite thing about the job um, these days is just the trust that my team has in me and vice versa, the trust I have in them too. Like we're just such a well-oiled machine these days. And um, it feels like there's a lot of that mutual respect and understanding and consideration. And I really love empowering my team and setting all of us up to see through our goals and our ideas come true. And we've had a lot of that stuff, like inside stories, like I was talking about, you know, the, the features team have had big dreams to do these kind of like documentary style. I'm sure you can empathize uh, these kind of like documentary style videos. And there's just, it's, it's so exciting um, and informative to like work on these things and then sharing it with the audience. Like it's some of the stuff that we're most proud of. And it's just, it makes me really happy when my team is really happy about those things. I've definitely been paying close attention to to those in particular. The um the lie that helped build Nintendo was yeah. um because that sort of kicked off the new wave of Yep, that like, inspired it. Stuff. Yeah, so that one I mean that's a that's a Joe Scrubbles uh special and he's also just so great on camera. He's he's one of those rare talents that can like write as well as he can speak on camera. I don't know how. 
Um, but he's it's frustrating. I know, right? Like, how do you exist? But yeah, that was that was the story that, and, and he. It's funny because he wanted to produce that story for so long. Like, it was something that he, you know had in the back of his mind for a while. And it wasn't until, you know, we restructured and we, we empowered, you know, new leads and we set people up to have that breathing room that I was speaking to earlier where it's like, okay, you know, you can, you don't have to worry about the day-to-day news today and overseeing all the edits. We'll, we'll, you know, Kat can take uh, over today and, you know, you can focus on this long form report. And then next week they may switch positions and she may focus on a long report while Joe's is keeping tabs on everything. And it gives them that opportunity to work on those sorts of things. And then becomes the inspiration for a brand new series that we work on. So we turned uh, Light of That Built Nintendo into an inside story, essentially, and just built off of a semi-similar format. But we've touched on a lot of different topics since then, too. Yeah, yeah I've seen. Uh, final question, I guess, because I know you need to go shortly. But um, with with pieces like that, the the more long-form reporting, whether it's in video or in written formats, obviously it takes a lot of time to to get that work done it's in in some ways it's a uh, a bigger risk in terms of staff time what do you look to get out of them is it is it is it purely about traffic or is it about something more than that with with a like prestige story definitely more than that you know i i think these are kind of evergreen um pieces that have the potential to really grow over time so i'm hoping like five years from now we look back at all our inside stories on youtube and they have like millions upon millions of views ideally <laughs> but um, I, I, you know, it's about, cause it kind of comes back to the, the changes that I still want, which is getting the audience to, to recognize some of the, the hard work that we've been doing and, and get a new impression for like what they can expect out of IGN. So it's not, we don't get the, oh, wow, surprising, um, comments. We get the like, oh, here we go again. An amazing, like long form piece. Like, how do they do it? Would love that. Please send over those comments. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think like that's the important thing of it is that, you know, we're not just encyclopedic. We're not just like churning through the news every day in an unreflective way. We're not just using our access to bring you like first looks and exclusives. We're also thinking about like the larger, deeper stories that you're interested in. And we're putting in the work to, to do these investigations because we think that there's an inherent informative value to them and also entertainment. Cause you know, we, mm-hmm. we certainly produce our inside stories to narratively flow in a very entertaining and engaging way. Um, so hopefully it is entertaining and valuable from an educational informative standpoint. And then people start to like understand and expect that from IGN because we're about quality. And so that's effectively like what I've pushed from day one. Um, you know, it's not just about getting the work done. It's, it's about getting the, and in this encyclopedic way, it's about doing all of those things, which is already a lot of work, but also being thoughtful and then taking a moment and giving your leads the ability to take a moment to think a little bit more strategically and think like, What is the follow-up to this that, you know, is unique to IGN, um, that people come to IGN because they can only see it with us because of the resources and abilities and the way that we've set up our workflow and our teams to be able to do that sort of thing. Tina, since we've been talking, nine articles have gone live on (laughs) IGN.com. I'm not Um, surprised. (laughs) And who knows how many on social and YouTube and all across. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this month's show. If you'd like to support this podcast or anything else we do at People Make Games, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash people make games. All patrons get access to the PMG Discord where you'll find, amongst other things, a channel dedicated to this podcast in particular. So you could head over there and let me know who you'd like me to interview next on the Games Press. Just a thought. We'll see you next time.